Well, welcome to the show. If you haven't been here before, this is that time of the month. It's a funny female storytelling show normally where we have five girls and one guy telling stories that are funny and true and awkward and sometimes screwed up. Um, but tonight, once a year, we flip, we flip the script and we do five guys and one girl. And this year we just decided to do all guys because we were tired of having one girl. So this year we have all guys. Um, and I'm very excited because this is, uh, the people on stage right now are some of my favorite writers in town, and some of them have been on the show before, some of them perform around town for other things, and some of them are just really good writers who haven't really tried to get out there yet, but they're awesome. Um, but every year I try to think about, because I host, I've hosted this two years now, and the first year um, was my first time ever hosting, and it was the absolute worst experience of my life. I was terrible, and I'll probably be bad tonight. But um, <laughs> then last year I did it again, and this is the third year, and I always try to think about you know what I'm going to have for an opening monologue. And the theme is boys will be boys, so there's a lot of stuff that I can talk about, because I'm a boy. Um, I love Jurassic Park. I was thinking about doing something about Jurassic Park, but I decided not to, because a lot of times I make Jurassic Park jokes, and no one gets them. And like nothing hurts my feelings more than when I make a Jurassic Park joke, and no one gets it. Um, and then I thought about Boy Scout stuff, because I did a Boy Scout story last year, but I didn't really feel like talking about Boy Scouts this year. And then this past year, I was a teacher, a uh, writing teacher, and I worked with a lot of elementary level and middle school boys, and they gave me some really interesting feedback on myself and on their lives. And so I thought I'd start off um, with a few entries from my journal about teaching them. Um, Here's, the first, here's one of the first ones. When teaching, I give my students two options to choose from when referring to me, Mr. Chris, or if it's easier to remember, Mr. Chainsaw, which was my nickname in college, which is a really long and disappointing story, so I won't tell it. <laughs> so far, most of them call me Mr. Chainsaw. In fact, basically all of them do except one school, Sylvan Park Elementary. There, for some reason, they've taken to calling me Mr. Cheese. I've thought several times of correcting them but anyone who's ever taught elementary school can tell you that when a group of small children have their minds set on something, they're sure as hell going to do it. So now I'm Mr. Cheese. I tell you this because of the prose poem I had written about me this afternoon, one by a small Russian boy titled, Mr. Cheese Pick Nose. <laughs> and if you ask my girlfriend, I pick my nose a lot. She yells at me all the time for it. Uh, is that just, you didn't like that? You're eating, sorry. Yes. Is that avocado? Yeah. <laughs> it was in the form of a no, and I think he was inspired by William Carlos Williams, This Is Just to Say, which I read them as an example of basic prose poetry. When I say that as an English literature major, I've never read something more heartfelt or more touching. I cannot be more serious. I give you, with the author's original spelling and punctuation, 
Mr. Cheese picked nose. Dear honey, last night I picked your nose. Then I picked your boyfriend's nose. Then I picked my girlfriend's nose. I'm sorry, I broke up with you. <laughs> then one of them, they, uh, they went to San Francisco for spring break, which I was like, wow, that's awesome. Like, did you really like it? And he said to me, the Golden Gate Bridge is, and I quote, a piece of junk and is just a stupid bridge painted red. <laughs> so be advised if you go there to stay away. Um, then another time I wrote, let's see. Yesterday I watched one of my students put his pencil down, look up at the ceiling and say, why am I always about to fart? <laughs> In that moment I understood existentialism. <laughs> The thing about kids is they, I, I mean, I'm sure people have kids in here, but they keep you humble as hell. Like they, they always, I don't know why, I have Sperry shoes on, but they always refer to these as high heels. They said I was wearing high heels. Like they made fun of me incessantly. Um, one of my students wrote a poem, uh, another one at Sylvan Park, at, yeah, and he, it's called Mr. Cheese and it says, he has girl boots, he wears inappropriate clothes. Because I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, and they said that that was inappropriate for class. He has a stylish phone. He is French. <laughs> I love that kid. <laughs> and the thing is, like, when you start teaching them, like, we had a we had a uh, a lesson plan for a while, and then I kind of just we kind of ran out of stuff to teach them. So I just started teaching them stuff I liked, um, and so I really enjoyed David Sedaris, and so I started teaching David Sedaris. Um, for anyone who knows who he is. And so I, he has in his new book a bunch of these um, kind of, they're kind of like monologues, they're fictional monologues of these just like absolutely absurd characters. Um, and so I read them one, and uh, this was, this was and, I, and I said to them, okay, I want you to write those now about whatever you want to write about. And so this was one by an 11-year-old boy who was eating sunflower seeds. Sunflower seeds are great, but there are a few pros and cons about them. One time I had one stuck in my throat. I was talking to my girlfriend I didn't like, but she liked me. I coughed, then it went splat on her face. Well, I said, that got it out. Then we broke up. That was actually a pro. There's really only one con to them. If you don't have something to put them in, you have to use your hand. Another pro about them is you can eat them whole if you don't feel like going through the trouble of getting the nuts out. Um, so yeah. I had a really enjoyable year just listening to them and having them make fun of me all the time. Um, and that's what my story's about later, and you'll hear how I tried to react to that. Um, but anyways, I think it's time to get to the performers. Yeah, if you guys want, you can come. Yeah, if you guys want to sit side stage. Hey, Johnny and Rose are here. Yeah, you're welcome to sit on the stage. there's some seats over here. And actually, my boss from the teaching company is here tonight, Miss Tama Tappet. The best hair in the world. I'm always so jealous of people who have cool hair, because I don't have cool hair. That's why I wear hats all the time. I have hair, I just don't have cool hair. Um, yeah. Anyways. How you doing? This is also the tour manager for the band Perry right here. So this guy, he's my roommate. And I also have another best friend in from town. Um, his name's Dave, and um, he lived my dream. And I didn't even know I had it, but he's from New Orleans, and they were filming Jurassic Park in New Orleans recently, and he got to be in the movie 
And not only that, Jimmy Buffett poured him a drink, and which is like my absolute dream come true. So I bow down to you, my friend. <laughs> Anyways, our first reader tonight is a guy I met at a wine tasting. He actually gives these really amazing wine tastings. Uh, and he is an author, a very successful entrepreneur. He is a Broadway singer. That's what his career was for a long, long time. Then he worked in a mega pulpit church as, a, I guess, a music director, right? Yeah. And then now he's got this really great book out called A Renaissance Redneck in a Mega Church Pulpit, which we'll be giving away a copy tonight. Um, and he's got them on sale over there. They're for they're ten bucks, but it's awesome. It's a really great read. And actually, what he's going to be reading is an excerpt from this. So. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Randy Elrod to the stage. So this is actually a memoir, and uh, I guess it took over 50 years to get the courage to write it. And so here you go. This writing is called In Praise of Bloomers. <laughs> I was born in the extreme poverty and backwoods of the Appalachians. But when I was age 13, my dad had had enough of the coal mines and we relocated to the big city, the inner city region of Chattanooga called East Lake. We lived with his mom, yeah, and he got a job at a yarn factory. It was a dramatic change, but one that did me good. The Chattanooga City School System at that time was one of the best in the state and I thrived in the diverse and challenging environment. But we no sooner got settled in there than we moved again. Dad had rented a ramshackle house trailer in nearby Ringgold, Georgia. The move back to the country was not a good one for me. The county schools were years behind the city school systems. For the first time in my life, though, I was at the same school for four years straight. And one would think that would provide much needed academic stability. But I cannot remember learning one thing in high school that contributed to my future studies. The motivation to excel in junior high quickly became apathy and disgust at teachers who were poorly trained, if at all. To make things interesting, I took bets from fellow students at the beginning of the school year that I could sleep every day in class and still make an A in the course. The sad truth is, I won every bet, and not one teacher ever woke me from my lethargy. <laughs> Two things salvaged my high school years, my dad's old trombone, and believe it or not, a haircut. But let's talk about the trombone first. Dad wouldn't allow my brother Terry and I to play football. He was afraid we would get hurt, so the only alternative for any sort of extracurricular activity was band. The band director's name was Doug Batson. He was a short man with a slender frame, frizzy golden brown hair, and a beard with a little goatee that protruded forward, much like his pot belly. He would wear striped bell-bottom slacks with a distinct pleat and some sort of booty shoes that curled up on the ends like an elf. In fact, if he had not been such a hairy creature and a chain smoker, he could have passed for a leprechaun. <laughs> Mr. Batson was earthy, and I couldn't get enough of his uninhibited self. So in 10th grade, I immediately applied to be his fourth period band-aid. I, I had never met a man like him. His voice was raspy from all the cigarettes and his breathing labored, but that did not stop him from rattling off the most colorful language I had ever heard. He was the first person I heard drop the F-bomb. 
We nerds would gather in his office at every opportunity, and he would regale us with stories of wine, women, and song. To my utter shock, one day, as a few of us boys who were ulcerating to be men gathered around his office, he leaned back in his office chair and propped his pointy boots on his desk, eyes closed and arms lazily crossed behind his head. He then proceeded to fantasize aloud in vivid detail about how groovy and luscious it would be if the curvaceous blonde twin sisters who were our band majorettes would one day shed their clothes and grace the pages of Playboy. You could literally feel the heat increase in that cluttered office. Later that hot spring day, during my customary nap on a school desk, consciousness wrestling with reason, I wondered if being pure really meant being happy. I remember reading in Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes, that being good is a fearful occupation. Men strain at it and sometimes break in two. As my face lay against that sticky laminate desktop, fever prickled my cheeks, perspiration trickled down my legs, and I conjured beautiful, but sinful, oh how sinful, images of the twins who sat only a few seats away. <laughs> Young boys do love sin, never doubt it, oh how they love it, in all shapes, sizes, colors, and smells. So when a boy's religion labels everything fun and beautiful as sin, it makes for big trouble come blossoming time. Sooner or later, natural God-given desire and passion are going to sprout and bloom. And after considerable wrestling, I think it's far better to germinate those wildflowers at a young age rather than later in life when things are grown up and complicated. Doug Batson not only gave me food for my fantasies, but more importantly, he gave me visions for a future. The only thing he loved more than sin was music, and his passion for tunes was contagious. He scheduled field trips, and I eagerly signed up for every one. I was working on weekends and finally had some money of my own, so I secretly ponied up for what were to be life-changing experiences. He took us to see jazz greats, Woody Herman and the Thundering Herd, Maynard Ferguson and Bill Watrous, as well as new rock bands such as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Chicago, and the Doobie Brothers. I was mesmerized. These people made money, real money, being musicians and doing what they loved. I couldn't understand why the church and my dad called this captivating music sinful. Hey, now that I think about it, everything Mr. Batson taught me was condemned as evil. Well, mine was not to reason why. I just knew my consciousness loved every satanic beat. I was sick and tired of being good and unhappy. So I made up my mind that year to become a professional musician. Which then brings us to the haircut. Around that same time, as fate would have it, I met Brad Oots. He was a charismatic 11th grader who lived next door in our latest neighborhood. Even though I went to the same high school for four years... We still moved three times. When we first moved back to the country from Chattanooga, all five of us lived in a tiny mobile home. Mom hated it, so we then temporarily moved to a rental property until Dad managed to save enough to buy a home. Brad was a tall, slender, good-looking guy with straight, natural blonde hair that hung to his shoulders and would swing as he walked. He always sported a ready smile and won my brother Terry and I as friends almost immediately. To say he was different 
than any boy I had met while growing up in the mountains was an understatement. He played guitar, a beautiful yellow Fender classic Telecaster. He drove a hip VW Beetle, religiously practiced Kung Fu, and was already honing his skills in what was to become his lifelong career as a hairstylist. <laughs> Brad did not cut hair, he styled hair. <laughs> On a fateful autumn day in 11th grade, with a few strokes of his scissors, Brad changed my life forever. I had been transformed as if by magic. Turning 16 and owning a car gave me a taste of freedom and independence, so despite Dad's protest, I'd already tried to grow my hair out. <laughs> but one side was much longer than the other and just stuck out in a random manner. My unruly curls and cowlick didn't help matters. Combined with a stubborn case of acne, I felt and looked like an awkward, ugly loser. Brad wet my hair, held a few strands up between his fingers, and clipped them all the same length with his scissors as we listened to Gladys Knight and the Pips sing the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> To his credit and my immense relief, he never picked up those damn clippers except to make sure my sideburns were even. Brad instructed me to wash my hair again, shake it, and let it dry naturally. He admonished me to never touch a comb again. The entire process took about 15 minutes. The next day at school, angel sang. A 12th grade goddess named Susan who one day previous had not been aware of my earthly existence, asked if I could give her a ride home. As she slid in the car, all legs and flesh, the smell of summer, sweet as clover, honey grass and wild mint filled the car. The white cloth of her tiny lacy bloomers peeped from beneath her miniskirt as she crossed her legs. I felt waves of dizziness. <laughs> as I grasped for my keys. And when I tried to say something, my tongue felt thick and useless. She was the first female other than my sister <laughs> to grace the confines of my purple 1962 Pontiac Tempest station wagon. <laughs> she would not be the last. I quickly raced to make up for lost time. This late bloomer had not realized the sensual vacuum deep within. The voluptuous hollow, the prolonged emptiness which undulated from tip to toe, had been waiting to be filled with summer flesh. Studies were forgotten, and all that mattered was quality time with the opposite sex that at long last recognized my existence. The soothing music of Gladys Knight was soon replaced by the angst of David Bowie, my nerdy purple Pontiac station wagon was replaced by a sexy, dark green Buick 454 four-barrel. Pretty girls, loud music, and fast cars created a rush of youthful passion that sated my lack of academic fulfillment. So I guess you could say that move back to the country wasn't such a bad thing after all. <laughs> Randy Elrod. Ah. Boys will be boys, right? Wow. Randy, uh, Randy's, he just 
did I finished his documentary. He just did a new documentary called God. I have a question or two, and he he actually invited me to be in it, and it's it's really uh, pretty awesome. But it's all addressing questions about like doubt, grief, loss, um, addiction, uh, depression, betrayal, and like everyone there had these like really like powerful stories. And I I get up there, and I'm like. I worked at Victoria's Secret for a couple of for a year. Like, I sold dogs, <laughs> and it's like everyone they, these beautiful stories. There, everyone's crying, and I'm like, I, I sell underwear. Like, <laughs> so thanks for having me there. I don't know what you're going to use of my role, but well. anyways, next up, I don't know what to say about you because you're a man of mystery, and he's he's under a stage name, so I can't use his real name, and I'm not going to tell you what he does. But he's uh, he's got a great camo blazer. I, I'm digging this, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Anyways, coming to the stage is uh, a really a brand new writer to the that time, which Randy was as well. Great job for your first time. It's tough up here. And uh, Tate Tate Richmond, our next reader, is also brand new. So give him a round of applause. Make him feel welcome. Melanie's been trying to urge me to write a story ever since I made the mistake of telling her I was a writer. And, uh, and last time I was here, she, uh, she told me it was the all-guys show next time. And the next day, I found myself telling the story that I've been telling for years. And so I wrote it down. And uh, it's called Fuck It. <laughs> During the building boom of the early 2000s, before the banking system meltdown, you know, when anyone could get a loan who was still proving that they could turn oxygen into carbon dioxide, my landscaping business was a runaway success. Each day was balls to the wall, meeting with big clients, creating designs, preparing proposals, shopping for plants and materials, and keeping the crews working and happy. My customers were Nashville's rich and famous country celebrities, rock stars, producers, supermodels, Beverly Hillbillies, big wigs of all kinds, and some that just thought they were big wigs. I was a great salesperson, treated everyone like a star, and became a fabulous designer. However, I was not so good at the business end of things. I barely kept records, schedules, receipts, timesheets, rules, regulations, or any of the minutiae that keeps a business legitimate made me crazy. I never wrote anything down. I kept all the details of multiple jobs in my head. I really needed a personal assistant. Things were out of control. Apologies to clients for completely forgotten meetings, job sites without the right materials, budget shortfalls became par for the course. I was trapped in a catch-22. I was so busy I needed a personal assistant to hire a personal assistant. But I didn't have one, so I didn't get one. I did develop a business mantra, and one that really worked. When the going got dicey, a job went over budget, all the materials didn't show up, or deadlines were not being met, not being met and we just had to make it work, I had a two-word solution. Fuck it. 20-something jackass country boys who worked for me loved it. By hook or by crook, the clients mostly stayed happy, 
But when things went awry, sometimes you just had to holler out, fuck it. <laughs> Each whirlwind day started with my foreman Bobby showing up at 5 or 6 a.m. to sleep off the last hours of his drunk in the leaned-back driver's seat of his portable bedroom, a banged-up old Honda Civic. Bobby played guitar in a band which mixed punk, techno, rap, gothic, new wave, with bluegrass and southern rock. No genre or whiskey bottle was left unturned. He was a rebel, but also a people pleaser. Any criticism caused him to sulk into, into depression and then explode with rage. He never wanted to make a mistake and never missed a day of work. He was a great employee. As time went on, the mounting responsibilities of growing success became overwhelming. I sought relief in online dating. Witty flirtations and deep conversations with multiple strangers about sex and the secrets of the universe lasted into the wee hours of the morning and gave me much-needed R&R from the business. It soon became an addiction, and I ended up exhausted and needing to be rousted awake along with Bobby when the rest of the crew showed up in the morning. My memory became ragged, and my business mantra became so overused that it lost its power. One day, I found myself on a job site, unleashing an uncontrollable string of fuckets that lasted a full three minutes. Fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it! Which left poor Bobby crying, angry, and banging a shovel against the truck. I realized I needed help. I turned to 12-step recovery. Uh, the spiritual program of 12-step brought me a new sense of ease. There's a lot of list-making in 12-step. I made lists of fears, lists of wrongs, resentments, character defects, people, and emotions. It seemed to work. I still kept all the business in my head, but there was more space for the details as I emptied out all the personal stuff. My business mantra became so infrequent, I used it jokingly so my ability to fuck it would not atrophy. <laughs> One day, I met someone new in a meeting. His name was Durandy. Yeah, I know, weird name, but like Dwayne, but with a Randy. <laughs> he was attractive, intelligent, well-dressed. He talked of a successful life in music, fashion, and the arts, and eloquently rephrased, wrote spiritual concepts, so they came alive with new meaning and interest. I gave him my number, and he said he was looking for a job. Wow, must be a God thing, I said. I've been looking for a personal assistant forever, and I think you would be perfect. Durandy wasted no time whipping everyone into shape. Timesheets were handed out, bills were paid on time, materials arrived at job sites, client meetings were never missed and everything I was looking for online was standing right in front of me. So we started dating, and we became a landscaping power couple. Randy and I worked hard all day and went clubbing late into the night. Everything ran smoothly, except for the fact that Bobby was a little jealous and longed for the old fuck it days. The jackass boys were okay with the gay thing, but the new accountability was not going over very well. One thing Durandy did that everyone liked was come up with funny names for the clients. 
For example, the high-powered lesbian couple who collected Asian babies like they were Ikea furniture and then left them all day with an Ecuadorian maid became Chinese baby lesbians, which I shortened to CBL. As part of his recovery program, Durandy volunteered at a halfway house for young women recovering from addiction. I reluctantly agreed to let him hire two girls from this house. They were beautiful young heroin addicts from really good families. <laughs> Although not related, Kara and Janelle resembled each other and had almost identical tramp stamp tattoos on their often revealed lower backs. The only way you could tell the difference from behind was this piercing that Janelle had on her neck which looked kind of like her grandmother had tried to stick a small knitting needle through her spinal column. Durandy referred to them as the heroin twins and promised that they would be no trouble and that he would personally be responsible for them. That's all these country boys need, I thought, a couple of freshly sober girls to ramp up their attention deficits. It seemed to go smoothly. The girls loved pulling weeds at the rock star homes where their druggy chic fit right in. One day, the halfway house informed me that the FBI was looking for Janelle and they were coming to get her. Something about drugs, murder, and a court date. Jesus, what was I thinking when I let Durandy hire them? The crew was at Chinese Baby Lesbians. I told the, I told the agents where to go informed Durandy, and headed to an afternoon meeting to blow off some steam. Always thinking three steps ahead, Durandy decided it was not a good idea for the FBI to raid CBL. It could scare the maid, who might have been illegal. He made up a phony excuse to Bobby, picked up Janelle at the job site, and brought her back to our office. Then he left it an unheeded message at the halfway house. The night before, Durandy and I had gone dancing at one of our regular gay bars. I had told Bobby about that the next morning and that a group of guys in a fancy Cadillac Escalade we had met uh, and we had told them about, uh, and they had gotten a kick out of our crazy landscape stories. Which is why when the FBI showed up at CBL in a heavily tinted Escalade and didn't show any identification, Bobby automatically assumed they were guys from the night before. <laughs> guys who weren't actually amused by our stories, but were undercover gay bashers who tracked us down and wanted to beat us up. They approached Bobby and asked him, where is she? Still not showing identification, they demanded he hand her over. Maintaining the assumption that they were gay bashers, Bobby thought the she and the her were derogatory references to me or Durant. <laughs> Bobby became very uncooperative with the agents, who in turn became very irate with him. He motioned for the country boys to grab a tool and get behind him. Assault on federal officers looked imminent. When one of them, taking a call from the halfway house on a Bluetooth, motioned for the others to get back into the SUV. As it squealed out of the driveway, Bobby yelled to the boys, let's roll. Bobby ran red lights, jumped sidewalks, and nearly killed several pedestrians trying to get back to the office before the right-wing bashers got us first. 
I arrived at the office just as the agents were leading Janelle to the Escalade. Suddenly, I heard the rumble of a work truck and the squeal of brakes as Bobby and the crew spun out in the yard and jumped out of the truck with heavy metal yard weapons in their raised hands. Bobby let out a war whoop as he ran toward us. I turned to him and held up my hands. Emotion drained from Bobby's face as he realized that Janelle was in handcuffs and everyone else unharmed. He dropped his axe and fell to his weak knees. Bobby, I asked, what the hell is going on? I thought they... His voice trailed off as he looked up at me sobbing. What? I demanded. What? Bobby couldn't speak. With tears rolling down his pained face, he simply mouthed, fuck it. Take Richmond. I should let everybody know that if they have kids, uh, they should they should leave now. Yeah, where's Bobby? Damn it, Bobby, where are you? Bobby, give it up for Bobby. That was awesome. Great job. That was, a, that was pretty good for a first timer, huh? What do you think? Yeah. We should have him back. Yeah. Do you have more camo blazers? Uh, yes. Uh, do you? Do you do yard work in those? Absolutely. Yeah. Those are pretty cool. Anyways, our next performer is, he's done it once, and he was fantastic. He, he performed for our show last year until Death Do His Part, which is all about weddings and marriage. And Oh, my boss is here, John Levy. Hey, John, what's going on? Give him a round of applause. I had a seat for you, but we filled up. I'm sorry. Please don't tell Rex. We had a seat for you, too. Ah! <laughs> it is one of the funniest guys I know right there, John Levy. No, he's not a Victoria's Secret, no. <laughs> um, anyways, our next reader is Mr. Peter Gross. He was here last June and did a really great story about his wife and he and their really great marriage that they have. And today, he's going to be talking about his two adopted children from China. Uh, so let's bring him to the stage. <laughs> this is the two tallest guys we've ever had at that time of the month, by the way. We usually have to, usually have to lower the mic, but today I have to bring it up. Anyways, Peter Gross. So the presence of Asian adopted children is only the uh, first reason that it's interesting that I'm going after Kate. Um, the second one is that I originally had, was thinking about calling the story Fuck That, actually. Um, in the end, my, this is always sitting around the house, and I was afraid my kids would actually see the title of the story while I was walking around. So um, it went through a couple of iterations. It was originally called How to, uh, the second name was How to Adopt a Boy. Uh, and the third one is just, which you'll understand later, called Walking Downstairs. Shelly and I have two kids, a girl aged 11 and a boy aged 9. Both are Chinese, and neither of us are, which means we acquired each of them the old-fashioned way. We went to a third world country, 
paid some communists a bunch of money, and flew them home on a jumbo jet over the North Pole. The adoption of our daughter in 2004 was fairly straightforward. We filled out a few hundred forms, gave the Department of Homeland Security our fingerprints a few times, and created a lengthy and elaborate dossier. 18 months after we started, we sat in a hotel in Nanchang with an amazing 14-month-old girl named Clara Jean. Easy peasy Chinesey, or at least that's the way it feels now. So when we decided to adopt another child from China, we thought, hey, now that we know what we're doing, the second adoption should be a breeze. Ha! This time we ran into a, first, a few snags. First snag, China's adoption process for healthy babies slowed way down. When we submitted our dossier for healthy baby number two in 2007, they predicted we would have a baby in um, 2014. Naturally, we said, fuck that. <laughs> Who orders a kid seven years in advance? <laughs> I, get, I get angry when Sears tells me it will take four days to get my new refrigerator. <laughs> Second snag. The rest of the international adoption landscape constricted considerably. Vietnam and South American adoption programs seemed to open and close more frequently than the bathroom stall at a hot chicken place. <laughs> programs in Russia and other Eastern European countries were having problems. What was a wide open international landscape in 2003 began a precipitous decline that still continues today. Third snag, Korea rejected us. We have good friends who have great kids from Korea. We know all Asians don't look the same, but at least our kids would look similar. <laughs> and if we lost our jobs, they would all likely be able to subsist on a diet of rice congee and soybeans. <laughs> we were excited. We picked an agency. We filled out forms completely and unfortunately honestly. And in the end, we were turned down because we had previously sought psychological counseling. Aww. Let me repeat that turned down because of psychological counseling. I grew up Jewish, for God's sakes. What's the alternative? <laughs> I thought we knew it might be an issue. I remember trying to decide whether we should lie about it on the medical forms. The trouble was I couldn't remember if we'd lied on forms for the previous adoption. And if we had not lied on previous forms, would anybody make the connection? If so, it would of course have exposed this current lie. So either we now we lie now and get caught in that lie, or risk telling the truth and getting rejected. So after crying together and swearing to boycott Bibimbap forever, we turned to the path we had talked about but had thus far put off. Waiting kids from China. Waiting kids are those who are older than two years or have medical, emotional, or other issues ranging from correctable heart problems to severe conditions like Down syndrome and everything in between. We had considered the waiting kids route once before, shortly before Korea, and came close to adopting a little girl with hepatitis B. We wrestled carefully and thoughtfully with what it would mean to bring a child into our family with a disease that might at any point flare up and put her liver, and thus her life, in danger. I ultimately decided I could not handle the fear, and we passed on her, with a good deal of regret that still lingers today. However, once Korea turned us down, Shelly moved into stealth bomber adoption mode. <laughs> Quietly and efficiently, and without my knowledge, she re-engaged in the listservs and websites that serve parents seeking waiting children in China. And one day, Shelly found Guanjin. 
He had cleft lip and cleft palate. He was a little under four years old. And he really was a beautiful boy in spite of what was a very severe cleft lip, which had only been partially and not terribly successfully repaired. When we decided to evaluate Guan Jin, they gave us a bunch of pictures of him on Soviet-style play equipment, in Maoist-era clothing, with caregivers who were perhaps one or two generations from looking like characters out of the good earth. We also got a medical report that included growth charts, a history of surgeries, and such cryptically unhelpful observations such as, quote, he is very good at walking upstairs, end quote. <laughs> okay. What about downstairs? We have both types of stairs in our house. The fear of this decision was overwhelming for me, and left to my own devices would have put it off until we found the perfect child, one which presented zero risks and zero problems. This is another classic case where Shelley's boundless Episcopalian optimism crashed straight into the Jewish fear bone in my head. My own superhero name is the Morbid Reflector, able to direct even the smallest amount of evidence into a worst-case scenario. And boy, I could come up with a lot of those scenarios in this case. Shelley and I talked for hours about those scenarios. How hard would it be to manage his cleft lip, speech issues, assimilation to our family and to our country and to the English language? We talked with families that had adopted cleft kids, with doctors who specialized in international adoptions, and reviewed websites dedicated to cleft issues. And I dragged this issue through multiple group therapy sessions where pros and cons were debated. In the end, I put my fear aside, or at least to the side, and decided to trust that his path and ours were the same, and that fear would not make that decision for me. Guanjin was destined to become Wade Guanjin Gross, and I was destined to be the father of a four-year-old boy with cleft lip and palate, who apparently is great at walking upstairs. <laughs> we packed up our things and I headed, and headed out to China. Shelley and I, six-year-old Clara June, and my 16-year-old nephew Dan. Again, we flew over the North Pole to China and landed in Shanghai where we fought jet lag, accidentally ordered garbage can-sized bowls of hot and sour soup, and explored the city. Three days later, we took the train to Nanjing amidst a crush of, what's, a crush of what seemed like 5,000 Chinese who were determined to get on the train at the same time, in spite of having reserved seats. We checked into our hotel and went promptly to the adoption office where we handed over another big wad of cash and met our son for the first time. He was sitting on the couch with one of his caregivers and Mama Zhang, the powerful force who was the director of his orphanage. He was carrying the Spider-Man backpack we had sent him a few months earlier and was clinging to the pillow we had sent him that had a picture of Claire G and Shelley and I printed on it. Seemed like a promising sign. We spent time with him and his caregivers. We had toys and clothes and other presents for him each of which he shoved into his Spider-Man backpack after examining it for a few minutes. Over time, he stuffed everything we gave him into that backpack and a few things we didn't. We think he viewed our visit as a field trip and he would want to make sure that he was able to bring all his stuff back to show his friends at the orphanage when he returned. The bag was eventually so heavy that he needed his own Sherpa. At some point in that first meeting, his caregivers had sneaked off something they do to avoid unnecessarily tearful goodbyes. Yeah, right. It only avoids it for them. When he realized they had left, he completely freaked out. He started screaming, blood-curdling, heartbreaking screams, 
and because his backpack was still light at that point, ran full speed to the door and banged on it to get out. These flights of terror were repeated every time we went to a different hotel or to the airport. If we took our eyes off him for a little while, we would see a little boy with a red winter jacket, Red Sox baseball hat, and a Spider-Man backpack running in the other direction. Any other direction. As we took trips around Nanjing to the grocery store and other shops, our guide Lily, in order to calm him down, would tell him in Mandarin that if he was a good boy and did not cry, that his new mama and baba would love him and buy him toys. When we took him out for his first lunch with us, he, we also made a startling discovery. He had no upper front teeth. In my typically incisive way, I looked at Shelly and said, holy shit, he doesn't have any front teeth. <laughs> Turns out that's pretty normal for cleft kids. Apparently we had a lot to learn. What we also learned was this terrified, terrified little boy was in the next moment capable of incredible trust and joy. He bonded with Claire June from the word go, and they were playing and laughing and holding hands within hours despite sharing zero formal language. He discovered the joys of orange juice and proceeded to drink groves of the stuff. And when we came back home, our dog and cat scared him horrendously. And within one week, he was trying to ride the dog across the floor. His personality today is almost an exact mirror of what we knew of him in those first few days. Funny, clever, inquisitive, resilient, and prone to fits of anxiety. In the end, both Shelley and I were right. My fear of adopting a four-year-old boy with cleft issues was pretty right on. Life has in many ways been extremely challenging as we learn to raise a boy with speech issues, cleft issues, anxiety, and some learning challenges. But Shelley's boundless optimism was also right because fear never made the world better. We made a 7,400 mile leap of faith that we were strong enough as individuals and as a family to handle the uncertainty that comes with any of life's decisions or indecisions biological, adoptive, or otherwise. When we look back, the arc of this story curved only toward Wade. We had door after door shut in our face for the second adoption. Yet literally within 48 hours after the Korea door shut, Shelley had found Wade. Six months to the day after that, our adoption was approved. And one month after that, we were in China, sitting in a Nanjing Starbucks as a family of four. I'd be lying if I said it has been easy peasy Chinesey. The important stuff rarely is, and that includes walking downstairs. Peter Gross, everybody. Peter Gross. so good at doing that. He's so good at being funny, but also just yanking the hell out of your heartstrings. Like, uh, every time, man. Great job. Wow. Oh, man. Well, next up, we have a That Time of the Month classic. Uh, Bob Clark. Bob came to every show that we did for, like, two years, and he would sit, like, right there or there, and he always had, you know, a nice thing to say after everyone performed. We always come up and we finally got Bob to come perform last year, and he did this story about Facebook. And he, I, I refer to him as like that time of the month's grumpy cat because he just tears things apart, but they're so funny. And then he did this story about this Brazilian biker chick last year that he tried to date, um, and that was amazing. But uh, Bob, Bob has since gone into the stand-up comedy world, so I'm so proud of him. So let's give him a round of applause for all because that's stand-up comedy. If anyone's ever done it or hasn't done it, it is so tough. Um, so great job going from our stage to just winging it, because winging it is hard as shit, man. 
So let's bring him to the stage, Bob Clark. You know, I wasn't going to say this, but since Chris said that, I'll say, uh, if that camo jacket is so great, how come we can see the guy? Huh? <laughs> so I'll say <laughs> When I first met Melanie and learned about her show, I became intrigued with the prospect of becoming a token male. I mean, I'll volunteer for token male in practically any context. I made it a goal, secret at first, to be the token male on that time of the month. Just once. The way some people want to jump out of a plane. Just once. I might add that goal remains unfulfilled. This is my third time here. In August of 2012, I emailed Melanie my first submission for the show with the boobs theme. Her theme, not mine. An excerpt. Big boobs, little boobs, boobs who climb on rocks. Fat boobs, skinny boobs, even boobs with chicken pox. <laughs> Melanie wrote back that she thought I secretly wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I thought she was crazy. I don't even like to be in the audience for those things. I'm afraid they're going to pick on me. Anyway, maybe she just meant, take that stuff somewhere else, buddy. It doesn't belong here. Anyway, one week later, I was on vacation in Chicago. The weather was splendid. It was impossible not to be in a good mood. I walked past an improv theater called Comedy Sports. A few minutes later, I saw another comedy venue. Then I spotted the Laugh Factory. I surprised myself by thinking, what the hell? Went in Rome. I took my laptop to a, com a coffee shop and quickly discovered that Cole's Pub was the stand-up open mic in Chicago on Wednesdays. With my boot material and gobs of other stuff that Melanie had rejected, I could surely come up with three minute, a three-minute set. I finalized my routine at the coffee shop, which centered around my former life as a high school physics teacher. I would tell jokes about teaching friction. What? Friction is funny and important. Did you know you couldn't walk or have an orgasm without friction? No friction? Friction. Friction is good stuff. I also worked in some boob stuff. Yeah. One of my students once studied the physics of bouncing breasts. He wanted to be a video game programmer, and they worry about things like that to make everything realistic, so it fit right in. As I waited to go on stage at Cole's, I had to watch many funny comics. This was like a mecca. I felt like my heart was beating as fast as a hummingbird's wings. I calmed down once I got on stage, and I got some laughs. It was a huge rush, I won't lie. How about that? I'm so insecure that I crave the laughter of strangers for validation. Good call, Mel. You had me pegged. <laughs> My Nashville debut came about a month later. On a Tuesday night nearly two years ago, I stepped onto the stage at Spanky's, a blue-collar sports bar. I used the same material that worked pretty well at Kohl's. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? I bombed. 
spectacularly. You could have heard a pin drop. Well, except for all the ambient noises associated with a sports bar, TVs, video games, people talking over my set. But at least they didn't heckle. But seriously, the sophisticated Chicago crowd got it. Why weren't these rednecks laughing at my brilliant material about the physics of frictions and tits? <laughs> After the show, I assured the host that that same routine had killed at the home of Second City. She diplomatically suggested that perhaps at Spanky's I had held the mic too far away from my mouth for the audience to hear me. <laughs> my Spanky's experience took the wind out of my sails. I only did one other open mic in Chicago during the next 10 months. But I finally landed my first gig at that time of the month in July 2013, poking fun on Facebook, and I got enough laughs to encourage me. Off and on, I kept trying out my joke to stand up open mics, but it really wasn't happening. Then this past February, I told another story at that time of the month. I got laughs, more than ever. It really boosted my spirits and confidence, which is what you'd expect for someone who craves validation through the laughter of <laughs> Whatever, as far as I was concerned, the system was working. About two and a half weeks later, I tried my luck at the Cult Fiction Underground Theater, which hosts a Thursday night open mic in East Nashville. It's another rustic environment. They pretty much all are. <laughs> the theater seats about 35 people in wooden chairs with curved backs, like the ones in my junior high school auditorium. The host appeared to be about 14 years old, and I doubt his body weight has ever seen triple digits. There were only about eight or ten people there that night. I assumed they were East Nashville hipsters, whatever that means. This was definitely not my demographic, but I don't think I have a demographic. Still full of confidence, I sputtered badly again. It wasn't quite a disaster of Spanky's proportions, but it was bad. Near the end of my set, I said that in the grand scheme of things, this isn't even a silent fart. It was probably fitting that no one laughed at that one. Those hipsters love irony. I swore to myself I'd never go back to cult fiction and try to make 20-something hipsters laugh. I swore. Even though I was getting very inconsistent results, I somehow stayed motivated. I had become pretty fearless. In late March, I really stepped up the pace. I began my blitzkrieg at the Rusty Nail in Hermitage, yet another rustic venue. My routine was based on, get this, poetic license being an actual card that comedians and other creative artists carry, like a driver's license. I was certain my premise was brilliant and humorous, but the Rusty Nail patrons were more discriminating than I expected, <laughs> and my material received a lukewarm reception at best. The following Tuesday, April 1st, I returned to Spanky's, I believe for the first time since the friction disaster a year and a half earlier. <laughs> I conceived and executed what I believed to be the perfect April Fool's jokes. I threatened to shoot and kill the entire audience with a gun I'd snuck into the bar. <laughs> An excerpt. And my gun is not the kind that goes bang, bang. It goes, eh. <laughs> but it goes a lot longer than that. I just ran out of breath. I failed to consider what would happen if no one laughed because they genuinely didn't think I was funny. It turns out it gets real awkward. It was as bad as the friction debacle, only this time I promised to kill them all for being such a lousy audience. April Fools! 
Undeterred by my second Spanky's disaster and others, the next night I went to the Springwater Supper Club and Lounge, which hosts a once-a-month Wednesday open mic. If you've never been there before, think Biker Bar. Maybe. It's definitely rusty. That night was probably my all-time favorite open mic. I was hardly so-so, but the other performers, oh my goodness, even the bartender did a set. I was introduced to the Reverend Jebediah Stump that night with his light blue polyester leisure suit. The Reverend dropped his drawers on stage and sitting on a makeshift toilet, he read his jokes from a glossy magazine. And they weren't for the faint of heart, let me tell you. I couldn't tell whether the last performer was completely shit-faced or just pretending to be. He wobbled about as he recounted the time in college when he had the good fortune to give swim lessons to two Brazilian exchange students on the volleyball team. He had even accompanied them to the the mall to help them pick out their swimsuits. Through his real or feigned drunkenness, I thought I detected a wistful yearning for the past that was pure poetry. Like many geniuses, he was unappreciated, and the crowd eventually booed him off the stage for rambling on and on about swim lessons. Even though I'd sworn off cult fiction for good in February, someone taught me into going back on the day after the Springwater show. My routine was based on a 3D IMAX version of It's a Wonderful Life. The three T effects came into play when George Bailey hurled that loose wooden ball on the banister at his son after old man Potter had driven him over the edge. Hey, I had to change the story around a bit to utilize the 3D IMAX capabilities. Poetic license. I got a much better <laughs> reception this time, and I returned to cult fiction many times. many times since then. Most of my biggest laughs this spring and summer were in that little room, which is nice because those hipsters love irony. <laughs> the very rustic Bobby's Idol Hour on Music Row hosted Money and I open mic. On the last Monday in April, I and a handful of others didn't get the message that it had been canceled due to bad weather warnings. We all agreed that the show must go on. Billy O showed up that night with two pit bulls in tow. The dogs roamed freely around the bar, not a leash in sight. Luckily, they were lovers, not fighters, as they reminded us from time to time. (laughs) As for Billy O, he told about the time he was nearly arrested by the Secret Secret Service for attempting to assassinate President Jimmy Carter. I'm happy to report that it was all a hilarious misunderstanding. But I realized listening to Billy O that night that I was a rank amateur in the presence of greatness. I was back at Springwater a couple days later. A comedian who followed me said, Am I the only one who thinks Bob has people tied up in his basement? (laughs) Now wait a minute, this is exactly why I didn't want to do stand-up right there. That was totally uncalled for. Or was it? I mean, hadn't I just read a love letter on stage to an ASCII emoticon that suspiciously resembled an animal? (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't complain. During the first week in July, I was at the rustic East Room across the river at their Tuesday night open mic. I threatened to make a dirty bomb from the radioactive sources and smoke detectors. I would set it off unless the East Nashville hipsters admitted that I was one of them. 
<laughs> it was one of my most successful routines of spring and summer, which was nice since I apparently enjoyed threatening to kill my audience. I ended up doing six open mics in four straight nights that first week in July. I've done nearly 50 since late February, and I seldom re repeated my material. My stand-up hobby had caused real-life obligations to pile up considerably. I knew I couldn't keep up that pace. I had to drastically cut back on my habit. I've only done two open mics in the last month and a half. It's a shame because I was starting to get the hang of it. When I catch up with, re with reality, I hope to get back. Like storytelling, it's great fun. And I'd like to just end by thanking Melanie. If I hadn't met her in a writer's group, I guarantee you I would have never climbed on a stage and tried to make a bunch of strangers laugh. So thank you, Melanie, and thank you. Bob Clark. Please don't kill our audience. Please don't kill um, you were really a physics teacher? I went to an all-boys Catholic school, and uh, my physics teacher, I, I don't know if I could label him the most racist person I've ever met, but he he used to, he was teaching about inertia, and he said, he explained it, and he's like, there would also be a great name for a black girl. And we were like, What? <laughs> He was very strange. He would start every class with this this uh, senseless deaths. He would like write them on the board. It was like people who had died that week, and it was just like completely stupid, and he would make fun of them. And it eventually like spiraled into people he just thought were stupid, anyways. And just like he would, he would, he started like doing it for five minutes. And then it like by the end of the year, it was like a half hour of class with him talking about the senseless deaths. Anyways, the Catholic school is strange. So if you're thinking about sending your kids to Catholic school, you might want to reconsider it. <laughs> Anyways, Gary Jenkins, where are you? Oh, there you are. Speaking of a stand-up comedian, we got another one coming up on stage right here. This guy, uh, if you ever go on the General Jackson, he is the head MC on the General Jackson. He is a great Elvis impersonator. Um, he is the head entertainment for the Harley convention coming up here this week. And uh, he's one of my favorite storytellers that we've had on that time of the month. So let's welcome to the stage, Gary Jenkins. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you, brother. Hey folks, seriously, how about a hand for Chris and Melanie for doing this? They're so talented, this is so awesome. And how about a hand for all the other storytellers? And thank you for coming out here tonight. This is so awesome, I love it so much. And and, uh, and I have to tell you, just a quick couple disclaimers before I share my story with you. I was concerned about the curse words in my story, but thanks to you, I'm no longer concerned. <laughs> Funny stuff, man. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, this is this has been a fun thing for me. I had I had planned to do another story, but um, I got busy and finished this one. I want you to know that uh, it is what it is, and uh, and I have uh, protected the identities of the people in this story. So don't be distracted by thinking, "Oh my God, I can't believe he's saying that about somebody." The name of my story is Waterbug. Stay with me. It gets better. <laughs> Jesus got in heaven. She was cute back in college. She was a spunky little gal from the tricky side of a small town in Alabama, like me. 
She had the chutzpah, looks, personality, and confidence to hang with the rich and popular sorority and cheerleader gals. We had got to know each other in Memphis when I was performing at a theme park and she was going to a community college. She had thick, dark hair, cut short and bouncy, muscular, athletic legs, full, full lips, perfect skin, and a compact, rockin' little gymnastic figure. Dorothy Hamill hair, Mary Lou Retton body. <laughs> Dated reference. <laughs> Flash forward 15 years and I'm in Nashville, a veteran of a couple of failed relationships and many short-termers, cruising the bars with the semi-confidence, bravado, and buzzed desperation of a post-30-year-old cover band front guy. <laughs> With six beers in my belly and a pack of Marlboros and a faux Garth Brooks shirt. <laughs> Boom, there she was. Semi hometown hottie with a few of her friends. She was in Nashville too, divorced with a friend with a kid, divorced with a kid. She was a makeup artist and looking no worse for the wear. Actually looking great. Mommy hopped. We chatted at a bar, had some talky talk on the phone, and decided this thing was on. We were going out. I've never been a big dater. The whole concept makes me nervous. It's like a really long job interview. With travel and a meal. And it's usually pass-fail. However, I had history with her. She seemed cool, easy to talk to, and man, she looked good. Did I mention she looked good? She did look good. How can you leave now, right in the middle of that? <laughs> wow, they're just getting boring. Better leave now. She looked good. When I showed up at her house, the pockets of my black, straight-legged Levi's were packed with the worldwide Saturday Night Loser kit. Cigarettes, a lighter, wallet, gum, and not one, but two condoms. Back then, I was an optimist. <laughs> with stamina. <laughs> Her place was one of those 1950s era cottage homes in an older neighborhood. Her kid was not around, which I respected. No reason to parade guys in front of a little one until you know he may be a keeper. And the place seemed homey and lived in normal. Not junky or hoarder-like, but filled with a healthy amount of life's clutter. Not some obsessively clean OCD lab, but nice, normal. A normal home lived in by a normal person. Yeah. <laughs> she wasn't wearing anything outrageous or revealing, just a cute little gal in a little dress, short-type combo mystery thing. 
and round, round neck top. She looked great. You could see she had a nice shape, but, but she wasn't trying too hard. It was tasteful, normal. After a quick, non-awkward greeting, lucky me, we were on our way out of the town. She wanted to go to a dance club in the basement of a high-rise on West End Avenue. We had an uneventful, pleasant drive of a couple of miles, parked in the parking deck and headed in. <laughs> the former office space was now a low-ceilinged disco, packed with people who were turning to the side, forming a path to allow us through. The air was filled with cigarette smoke, smoke from the fog machines and illuminated by colored lights, giving it a stop, drop, and roll vibe. <laughs> But this was her place, her hang, and she seemed to be heading somewhere, looking for someone. Finally, she found her person and started talking to him. I was halfway paying attention, but I leaned in more when I heard what she was saying, very loudly, to this well-dressed man and his somewhat threatening assistant, I assume security guard, her yelling, you suck a motherfucker! This fucking place is a fucking piece of shit. Fuck this motherfucking place. <laughs> and on and on and on she went. She was verbally disemboweling this guy. And he was in shock. There had been no lead up, no warning, no incident, no nothing. She had arrived, sought him out, and was verbally unloading on him with all she had. As if the poor quality of his establishment was his way of personally attacking her and all that she held dear. This went on and on, and the two men's heads were moving up and down as they took in her petite stature and cute, semi-conservative outfit, and were trying to process what exactly was happening and why it was happening. Eventually, they began to grow tired of her raging and became irritated. Approaching angry, they began to look at me. I'm thinking, they can't hit her, but they can hit me. I'm thinking, they're thinking this too. I don't know what's going on, I said. I'm sorry, I'm just with her. This wasn't really good enough for these guys. But I think they sensed I was as shocked as they were. She was oblivious to me. Somehow, I don't know how, this scene ended and we pushed through the crowd outside onto the sidewalk that was filled with people walking both ways out for a fun, out, out for a fun night on a beautiful evening. Sorry, man. I was following along behind her, dumbfounded. She was walking up to men, groups of men, and shouting, Suck a motherfucker! I'd never really heard these two words. Her preferred vocal weapons put together, and it was a creative. It was creative and effective. The long use of sucka, the long ah, sickeningly brilliant, and adding to this bizarre, unexpected experience. In which I was caught up. 
At first, people would smile, like, wow, she's having fun and being crazy. But very quickly, they realized she is crazy. <laughs> and she's mean as hell. And, and she's verbally assaulting me in public. I was in shock, trailing along behind, trying to process disaster, process this disaster of which I was at the center. It was fascinating to watch people react to her. Groups of tall, young men laughing and having fun when this petite, pretty gal walked up and engaged them. And then immediately their brows would furrow with shock. And then anger, then confusion about what to do or say. Then again, they'd look at me. <laughs> Once again, I would shrug, exaggeratedly shake my head, point, point discreetly, Finger down low to the side of my head, turning my finger in circles, doing the international sign for her. She's fucking crazy. She ran out into the traffic and was stopping cars, speaking into the windows. I had... She did. <laughs> I had blended back into the crowd as if I weren't with her, like Peter denying he knew Jesus. <laughs> But I was watching every move, astounded. She stopped a car full of young African-American men. <sighs> there, were no more, there was no more room, but she wanted in, and she was waving me over. They scooted over to let her in. She was about halfway in, and I guess she started sharing her personality with him. There was an explosion of shouting and cursing from them, telling her to get the fuck out, and they sped off. The door flopping shut as they went. She flagged down a cab that had already had people in it and made a quick deal to split the cab. Another argument ensued, and she was out of the cab and into another. She waved for me to come on. I came on. Why? Partly. I was in shock. I was in a shock-induced trance. It was mesmerizing to witness this. But still, frankly, she looked pretty good. <laughs> We were heading downtown and she was loud, loudly criticizing the driving skills of the cab driver. He threatened to make us get out, but luckily the trip ended before his patience. We wound up at this disco called Johnny Jackson's Soul Satisfaction. I had heard of it. It was a DJ party that floated around town, frequented by people way cooler than me. Tonight it was in a warehouse space. Inside we went. It was all a blur. I do remember she engaged several people with the same charm she had displayed all night. Rushing into the DJ booth, talking to guys, angering their girls, and then she got up on a shaky table and danced. Part of me wished she would fall. People like her rarely do. She didn't. She teetered and tottered and nailed the dismount with those perfect Mary Lou Retton legs. Yes, I noticed. In the noisy club, her horribleness was, wasn't quite as noticeable, but people were moving away, giving her space. Most women and many men may not understand why I stuck around, but this is an excellent illustration of how the male mind works. Even after all she had done so far, embarrassed me, alarmed me, and even actually somewhat endangered me, I was still thinking, she looks pretty good. An attractive woman can get away with quite a lot. If Osama bin Laden 
had, had looked like Angelina Jolie. I promise a lot of men would have been like, hey, give her a break. She's just doing her job. Once she had cleared the dance floor, we left that place, and I sat on a loading dock of this dark, sketchy part of town while she flagged down strangers' cars and jumped halfway in and then back out. Her boldness that night probably sent serial killers and rapists speeding away, crying, feeling defiled and violated. Her personality was her pepper spray. We ended up in a 1970s era Electra 225 or some sort of boat of a Cadillac Huggy Bear ride. Right out, of an old, right out of an old episode of Beretta or Starsky and Hutch. She said she knew the guy's driving. I doubted it. But at this point, I was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. I was submissive and compliant, hypnotized by her total disregard for accepted rules of society. They dropped us at a Greek place on Elliston that was closed, but she beat on the window, showed them how hot she was, and the guys inside made food for us, and luckily for them, we ate on the sidewalk. I vividly remember being disgusted with myself at this point in the evening, because in spite of her absolute insanity, I was still thinking, she looks pretty good. Maybe I can sleep with her. We ended up at her place, and it was on pretty fast. I don't remember a lot of details, but I do remember we arrived at exactly the same time. <laughs> the exact same time. I was, and am still to this day, alarmed at how great it was. I mean, we were on the same wavelength physically. There was, there was something there. Now, what does that say about me? In hindsight, I'm convinced there's nothing like the unbridled passion and physical connection capable of those who are truly on the edge of mental health. In my, experience, in my experience, they do nothing halfway. They eat, drink, laugh, fight, and fuck like the world is ending in ten minutes. It's a primal wrestling match for life. It's awesome and sad and absolutely intoxicating. Oh my God, I told you this was going to get weird. It's as if you being inside of them for just a few minutes finally makes them whole. They are completely lost in the moment, not self-conscious, and absolutely... I'm editing it. <laughs> like I said, it was intoxicating. Sorry, a little weird. I know it wasn't documented. <sighs> Healthy, well-adjusted people, I imagine, shyly remove their clothing in the dark, lay their garments aside, perhaps folded, awkwardly kiss in an attempt to procreate. Once you have experienced crazy sex, or sex with a crazy. No disrespect to the truly mentally ill. The sad thing is you are ruined for a healthy person. No matter if your crazy keyed your car, got you put in jail, or stabbed you, years later, you will lay in bed, post-quiz, 
with your healthy lover whose credit and serotonin is excellent. <laughs> and you will stare into the darkness, remembering the darkness. When it was all over, I excused myself and returned to find her in bed, naked and smoking a cigarette. Tapping the ashes into an almost full ashtray she had wedged between her flawless bull sea breasts. <laughs> Once again, unexpected. The juxtaposition of her breast and the ashtray was like seeing the original Van Gogh's Starry Night with a puddle of puke in the middle. I stood there naked and silent. She said, kill that water bug. I didn't catch it at first. Kill that water bug, she insisted, louder. I looked to my right and on the dingy walls, I want to say they were light green, like the walls I grew up in when we were poor and had water bugs. Sure enough, there was a water bug, making his sad, slow way up the wall at a slight angle, going who knows where. I guess he had seen enough. <laughs> I went to the bathroom, got a tissue, mashed him up, and dropped him in the toilet. That wouldn't be such a bad way to go. <laughs> we had some sort of discussion about how great that you-know-what had been, and we went to sleep in each other's arms. It was actually nice. The next morning, I woke up, and she was gone. I got up to go to the restroom approached the toilet, mentally and physically preparing to release my beer-filled bladder, and there it was. After all that had happened, all I had been through, the experience was not over yet. She had left something for me. Yeah, in the toilet. With a water bug, a gift. It stopped me in my tracks. I panicked. I shut down all pee systems and ran back into the room and got in bed. She rounded the corner, somehow put two and number two together, and much to her credit, she screamed. Oh no, I, I was going to flush that, she said. Wow, oh, I've gone too far. I can't remember what was said. I tried to comfort her, I'm sure, or reassure her. I'm not sure why she chose to put off the flush. Maybe she got distracted. Maybe the phone rang. Maybe she lurched for another water bug. But the vision that was seared into my mind, the thing I couldn't unsee, was like an exclamation point. An emphatic ending to a bizarre evening of depravity and craziness and my willingness to suffer anything to momentarily relieve my loneliness with a beautiful girl from my past. I ran into her a few more times. She seemed to be doing well. She did say that she'd been hit by a bus <laughs> while walking and was suing. I thought, who the fuck gets hit by a bus? <laughs> we never tried to recapture the magnet magic of that evening. 
In spite of the bus, <laughs> she seemed to be doing okay. And neither of us ever mentioned any of the things that happened that night. I had so many mixed feelings, I shared the story with my buddies on a long ride to some faraway gig, and they all laughed. It did seem kind of funny later, much later. Many years have now gone by, but every now and then I'll run into one of those old bandmates and he'll say, Hey man, tell that water bug story. <laughs> That's an entertainer right there. That's how you do it. Well, I got a long way to go. Um, all right, one last story. So, as I started out talking, I was a teacher, and this is the story of how I struggled to get students to respect me and what I did to try to get them to respect me one time. And it almost got me fired. <laughs> the story's called Why You Gotta Be So Mean. Thank you. You want to sing that? Okay. Looking at the children before me, I should, have, I should have stopped long ago. After working at Victoria's Secret for a long, strange year, I continued like most creatives do when trying to avoid their mother's basement, down the black hole path of retail. I would never say this was a bad thing, though. My time in retail taught me valuable lessons about observation and how to annoy the shit out of a salesperson until they give you what you want for free, two things that are vital to a writer. But as this but as this is just a college gig turned into this is just a part-time thing until I get a real job, before finally maturing into this is now 40 hours of my week, I began to panic. Retail was not the future I'd planned for myself. It did not entail the 40-foot schooner I'd call Thong with the Wind, or the weekends I'd spend with it spend on it with Tom Brady, Giselle Bunchen, and my supermodel girlfriend Alessandra Ambrosio. <laughs> So when I was offered a position to teach writing to elementary and middle school students, I immediately jumped at it. No, it wouldn't afford the lifestyle I expected for myself, but it would at least get me out of the mall and one step closer to marrying a Vineyard Vines model. I was somewhat concerned, though. Not only was I going from the world of G-strings to silly string, teaching to me had always been like old men who wear oversized air t-shirts in public, a fate I both laughed at and was terrified to succumb to. I had specific creative goals I intended to achieve, goals that would make me rich and famous, and guiding the youth of America was never one of them. <laughs> but now I stood before three elementary students, two girls and a boy, convincing them of perhaps the most dangerous lie you can tell a child. I'm dating Taylor Swift. <laughs> this probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for three things. It being my first day teaching them, I being their third teacher in three months, and a bit of advice I received from another teacher on how to take control of an unruly classroom, a problem I've been having again and again. For those who don't know, when you inherit a class from another teacher, particularly a teacher the students really enjoyed, you're at an immediate disadvantage. They may behave for the first hour or so, quietly doing their schoolwork and respectfully raising their hands, but once they felt you out, like the raptors testing the fences in Jurassic Park, all hell breaks loose. See, no one laughs at my Jurassic Park jokes. I try. I love that movie. This had happened to me twice so far. Or, yeah, twice so far. And after being crippled by fear for two weeks straight, I called up a friend who teaches fourth grade and asked for some help. Her advice was simple. Turn off the lights, turn on some classical music, and, I quote, 
walk into the classroom like you've got a dick in your pants. I do it all the time, she added. Well, I know she only meant it metaphorically, a stop being a pussy and man up kind of thing. The last part worried me considerably. Not only was I a grown man alone in a room with children, I was a grown man who once worked at Victoria's Secret and was now supposed to walk into a classroom like he's got a dick in his pants. It just didn't seem right. Had I been at the Super Bowl or in the war room of the Pentagon, sure. But dicks were something you generally left at the door when you entered a school, like guns or a fascination with Wicca. No one wants anything to do with them. But as I listened to my three students get louder and louder and feared that I was losing control of them, I knew I had to take action. They were debating the name of Taylor Swift's boyfriend, and I was going to end it. You're all actually wrong, I said. I'm Taylor Swift's boyfriend. They looked at me and laughed. Nah, uh said a third grade girl named Kelly. What's her middle name then? I did not, in fact, know Taylor Swift's middle name. I could have guessed any number of possibilities, but feared for losing credibility if I was wrong. Well, I said, the one she lists on her website and stuff is actually fake. She has to do that because it's illegal for her to give out her real middle name as a famous person, but I know what it is because I saw it on her driver's license one time when we were getting a drink. It's Elizabeth. The other girl and the boy, Allison and Aaron, looked at each other incredulously. What? They said in unison, but Kelly wasn't having it. Okay, she said, narrowing her eyes. What's her favorite restaurant then? I looked at her and smiled. Chewies. She loves their skinny girl margaritas. <laughs> Allison, who I later learned was Taylor Swift's biggest fan in the universe, perked up at this. Okay, she said, getting in on the action. What's her favorite place to shop then? I think she believed this would do me in. No straight man not dating her would know where Taylor Swift liked to shop, and they were still certain at this point I wasn't dating her. Feeling triumphant, Allison smiled at Kelly, who grinned back at her as if to say, this fucker's toast. <laughs> the only thing was, this fucker had just worked in the mall for three years. Okay, this is going to sound crazy, I said, because Taylor seems like such a J.Crew, free people kind of girl, but actually, and you won't read this anywhere, she loves to shop at Betsy Johnson. Kelly slapped her hand on the desk. Nuh-uh, she screamed. I just read that she loves to shop on Melrose. I laughed derisively. Well, that's your problem right there. She's not going to tell a magazine where she likes to shop. Think about it. If she does that, then all of her crazy fans will show up there and wait for her. She looked down at her desk in frustration, then at Allison, who crossed her arms and leaned back in her chair. Okay, she said. Show us a text message then. This is probably where I should have stopped. <laughs> I should have put away my phone and said, okay, you got me, the gig is up. That's at least what a real adult would have done in this situation. <laughs> Not whipped out their iPhone, gone into their contacts, and changed their girlfriend's name to Taylor Swift. <laughs> which is exactly what I did. I showed them my list of iMessages, which included a few of my friends and Taylor Swift, with her last message reading, he, 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 he. <laughs> the girls freaked out. Oh my god, you're dating Taylor Swift! Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! They screamed in unison. Feeling victorious, I thought I'd cemented a little more by opening up our text thread and scanning through it quickly to show them that this wasn't just a one-time deal. We were having full-on conversations. Later, I realized this was the stupidest thing I'd ever done. <laughs> Though she wasn't on the road at the time, my girlfriend travels pretty off often, either for her job or her music career. And as a result, we tend to send each other, well, pictures. 
I can only imagine the conversation that would have ensued had this been going on at the time. Employer. So, looking over at your resume, it says here that you last worked as a writing instructor, but you were let go after three months. Do you mind explaining what happened? Me. Sure, no problem whatsoever. Me. Thinking. How do I put this? I accidentally showed a child a picture of my penis? <laughs> Even without that happening, thank God. It's no surprise that a parent wrote an email to my boss that night expressing her concern. Not only did he tell the kids they could call him Mr. Chainsaw, which is just unusual, he led them to believe that Taylor Swift was picking him up after class. I just think it's very strange behavior for a teacher. As much as I wanted to write back and say, don't get mad at me for your child being such an idiot, I didn't, because the child wasn't an idiot. Children believe far-fetched things like Santa Claus and their teacher dating Taylor Swift because they want to. Adults are an entirely different world for them, a realm where anything is possible, especially if that anything involves their favorite singer of all time. They weren't the ones to blame here. I was. So I wrote back with an apology, explaining that I'd merely done it to try to win them over, and not because I wanted to take them back to my van down by the river. <laughs> I'll clear everything up first thing next week, I told her, and I'll bring Girl Scouts and cookies as a band-aid, which is exactly what I did. I sat them down and explained it was a joke. So wait, said Aaron, who'd been mumming the subject until now. Taylor Swift's not actually your girlfriend? No, I said, watching him doodle on his paper. And you don't even know her? No, I, I don't even know her. He put his pencil down and turned to the girls behind him. Did you believe the nerve of this guy? <laughs> and thinking how I took a job teaching children only so I could get out of retail, I nodded my head in agreement. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> give it up for all the storytellers. Peter, Terry, Bob, and Gary. Thank you, Melanie. And thank you all for coming out. It's hot as balls in here, so let's get out. Now you heard, go spread the word They're funny, smart, and so absurd Happens every month It's the neatest storytelling At its sweetest Ooh.